everybody, and welcome to the podcast, Generations of Regeneration, organized by the Osteoscience Foundation. Today, I'll be your host. I'm Alex Tatara. I'm currently a fellow in infectious diseases at the Massachusetts General Hospital, as well as as a postdoctoral researcher at Harvard University's Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering in the laboratory of David Mooney. In the past, I have been funded um, in part by the Osteoscience Foundation. Currently, uh, I'm funded by a T32 from the National Institutes of Health, and I have no other financial disclosures. However, I do have another type of disclosure to make, and that is about my relationship with today's guest. Uh, we are utmostly excited to welcome Dr. Mark Wong to our podcast. And this is not an unbiased interview, as I've had the pleasure uh, to work with Dr. Wong and be mentored by Dr. Wong for many years now, as he served on my thesis committee, uh, I won't say how many years ago, to to save us both some embarrassment uh, when I was a graduate student at Rice University. Um, I've been told by our staff here that no matter how poorly this interview goes, um, he is not able to retroactively uh, pull back my PhD. So everyone is, is, this is a safe space for both of us here. For our viewers, Dr. Mark Wong is the current chair of the Bernard and Gloria Katz Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. Uh, as far as I know, the largest training program of its type in the country. Um, he's also the current director and chair of the Osteoscience Foundation Board. He received his DDS from the University of Singapore and trained as a house officer in the UK at North Wales. He completed his residency in OMFS at the University of Miami. He has served as the program director of, again, the country's largest OMFS department since 1996, and he's only the third department chair of this illustrious department, um, which he started his chairship in the year 2000. In addition to his clinical and administrative duties, uh, we have the pleasure of speaking with him on this podcast because of the legacy of his work in the field of regenerative medicine. His work's been featured in leading journals such as the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Tissue Engineering, and Biomaterials. His work's been funded over the years by agencies such as the National Institutes of Health, the Department of Defense, and the Armed Forces Institute of Regeneration. His work in regenerative medicine and tissue engineering has been widely disseminated across the field in the form of over 90 publications um, that cumulatively have thousands and thousands of citations. So in this interview, um, we're going to touch on Dr. Wong's career path. Um, Then we're going to sort of metaphorically go to the bedside and go over some patient cases. We'll take it back to the bench top and talk about the state of science in, in his field today. And then we'll try to go back to the bedside and talk about some translational hurdles the field faces. Um, all the while, we'll be able to review some of his accomplishments. But my understanding is the accomplishment he's most proud of in his legacy of, of leading clinicians, scientists, and, and, and figures in the field is his family. Um, I don't know if you want to share for our viewers some exciting updates that your, your family has the last couple of years. I'm sure you're very proud. Oh, <laughs> well, okay. So we can talk about my biological family, but uh, I think we can also talk about the extended family, the professional family as well. Uh, biological family. Um, well, um, my wife, uh, I met in, in Miami. Her name is Marlene and uh, she's a, uh, a nurse anesthetist. Uh, we have uh, three children, the oldest of which just graduated uh, uh, from her speech pathology program at the University of Houston. And uh, so she's now a licensed speech and language pathologist and has actually gotten her first job as an intern. Um, the middle daughter, Lindsay, is uh, a, a third year dental student uh, right here in our own institution. 
And uh, the youngest, Matthew, who I think some of you may have met uh, during his uh, uh, undergrad days when he was working in the labs of various people that we know, in particular Dr. Mikos, um, he is just about to start medical school uh, also here in Houston in, in uh, uh, the fall semester. So, um, so that's, that's, that's the biological family. Um, now the professional family, as as you well know, you know, uh, extends not only to the individuals that we have here in the department, you know, the faculty as well as the residents. A number of the faculty are are, are my former residents too, so you know, they're individuals that I've known for many many years. Um, but you know, it it also extends to the. Uh, um, incredible collaborations that I've really enjoyed over the years uh, with the Department of Bioengineering over there at Rice University. And uh, that has been one of the high points of my professional career uh, to be able to uh, develop relationships with not only Professor Mikos, Antonios Mikos, who you are very, very familiar with and who was your principal mentor and, 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 and uh, director of your thesis committee, but also uh, individuals such as uh, Professor Kiriakos Nacio, uh, who was formerly at Rice, uh, uh, currently at UC uh, Irvine, um, and um, um, his work in regenerative medicine really focused more on cartilage, uh, and we did a lot of work together in, in TMJ, you know, biocharacterization as well as uh, 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 regeneration of the TMJ disc. So, you know, both of these families are very, very important to me, and I am very proud of, of, uh, uh, of all, all aspects of them. Uh, and, you know, obviously working with individuals such as yourself, Alex, and, 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 and most recently with, with uh, Emma Watson, uh, who is uh, just starting her ENT residency at, at St. Louis. Uh, the, these really are, you know, the high points. Um, as you say, you know, if you work with really good and smart people like yourself, you just make make us look good. And uh, I think that 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 has been a, a wonderful, you know, two way, you know, sort of uh, uh, um, collaboration. Generations of regeneration is both literal and figurative, um, which is fantastic. Um, yeah. So let's take a step back. And, um, you know, before you were Dr. Mark Wong, you were regular old Mark Wong. Um, what steps in your life, you know, led you to become a surgeon scientist, particularly in the field of regenerative medicine? Oh, you want to go all the way back to even before I became a, 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 a well, you know, a dentist first, and then later on, you know, an oral surgeon. So, well, I guess, you know, that part of the legacy really starts back with, with my own uh, family. Um, I come from a, a, a very um, medically oriented family itself. Uh, my grandfather and his brother were uh, physicians who actually uh, uh, went to medical school at the University of Edinburgh back in the early 1900s. Uh, my grandfather and his 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 brother, you know, had a number of children, the vast majority of which, um, you know, uh, became physicians, and then they went on to marry physicians. So, uh, for instance, uh, my mother and her uh, four of the siblings are, are are all doctors, and they all married doctors. Um, and then now the third generation down is is also made up, you know, of a lot of people who have been in medicine. So, you know, in some respects, you could say that that it was, it was probably more difficult for us to consider a career outside of the health sciences, you know, than it was, you know, just to go with the flows. Um, so I have a, you know, I have a brother who's a, a hematologist oncologist, and I have a sister who's a, 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 a radiologist. Uh, um, uh, both of them work in the cancer field, and, and they're both in, in, in Singapore. 
Um, so, you know, in some respects, I would say that, that, that one of my earliest influences really had to do with, uh, with my father. And, and uh, he, he was a physician. He always wanted to specialize, but because of the war years, you know, they, they were uh, really in that generation that, that endured the Second World War. Um, they lost, you know, in essence, really four years of their academic time because of, uh, you know, because of, of, of the war. So eventually, you know, he and my mother uh, entered into family practice because they, they wanted to start a family early and they, they, they really needed, you know, to, to, uh, to make a living. Um, but they, they, uh, they, they both, you know, um, uh, uh, promoted, you know, the, uh, um, the concept of specialization and the concept of really being able to, to find, you know, some sort of passion in terms of what we're doing, you know, from a, uh, a professional sort of standpoint. And, and you know, it, it's really true that if, if you really love what you're doing, then it's no longer a job, isn't it? It's, it's, it's um, you know, it's a lifestyle. Um, and so that, that, that was really probably the start of the whole thing. Um, well, later on, as you said, you know, I, I spent time uh, uh, in, in the UK, worked in a unit up in North Wales that was uh, very, very heavily invested in doing major maxillofacial surgery, of which, you know, cancer surgery and trauma surgery were, uh, were uh, uh, very much part of the, uh, the remit of the department itself. Uh, moving on to the states at the University of Miami again, you know those the, that that's an, an institution that um, has a significant trauma volume, and as a result of which, you know, with with all the trauma, you are also faced with a lot of reconstructive challenges. Um, and then, you know, a personal mentor of mine was Robert Marks. You know, uh, Bob Marks was the uh, program director at, at the University of Miami and, and, of course, an extremely well-known individual in uh, bone grafting and, and, and also reconstruction. Uh, and, you know, he had a lot to do with influencing me, not only with an interest in this particular discipline, but also, you know, forcing me to think, you know, a little bit about the, 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 um, the biology, if you will, of, of bone grafts, not just, you know, the, the mechanics of it all. Um, so it's that interest in the biology of, of bone grafting and also in, an interest in, in the biology of wound healing, you know, that uh, naturally led me to uh, um, uh, develop an interest in regenerative medicine. Um, I know, you know, we were talking really a little bit about different people who might have had an influence uh, uh, from a mentorship sort of standpoint. Well, obviously, Bob Marks, you know, had, had a significant influence on me. Uh, but one of the individuals that I found, you know, to be incredibly inspiring, and, and he's not a person that I had a direct professional connection with, but he was more a person that I heard speak at, at a meeting. And so, you know, years ago, um, Jeff Hollinger and, 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 and others, you know, uh, came up with this concept of a multidisciplinary bone symposium uh, that was being offered initially at Walter Reed when Dr. Hollinger was still in, in uh, an active duty uh, army uh, uh, researcher. Later on, when he went to uh, the, the University of, uh, uh, he went to Oregon Health Science Center uh, um, in Portland, he took that concept over there and, and they hosted a, a further two bone meetings there as well. And in that, this bone meeting, which was this wonderful collection of surgeons, scientists, basic scientists, and from you know multiple different disciplines and areas itself, you know, all talking about things, 
there was one speaker that really stood out, uh, and I and I had the privilege of listening to him twice. And that was uh, that was a person who wasn't really interested. I mean, wasn't focused on bone uh, uh, in in as much as angiogenesis. Um, and that, of course, is uh, uh, well was you know Judah Folkman, um, you know the the, the renowned uh, pediatric surgeon um, who's entire interest in angiogenesis really started off with his initial interest at trying to cure cancer, you know, and he had made the observation that a lot of these pediatric uh, malignancies that he was trying to treat were incredibly vascular uh, 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 tumors. And so he came up with the idea that if he could somehow impede, you know, the uh, uh, the blood supply to these tumors, that he might ultimately be able to cure the patient of that. And so the whole concept of anti-angiogenesis, you know, was very much foremost in his mind. But you know, at the time that Dr. Folkman was looking into uh, uh, developing techniques for stopping angiogenesis, there was very little known about angiogenesis itself. And so, I would, you know, I don't know how many years it was, but for a good part of his initial career, he had to really start, you know, with with trying to develop an understanding and knowledge, and 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 you know, by virtue of which he he basically, you know, taught all of us about what angiogenesis was all about. And so listening to his story about, you know, starting at the very, very most basic sort of concepts uh, of uh, uh, biology and then building it into a therapeutic sort of modality itself was kind of what got me interested, you know, in looking at uh, regenerative medicine from the standpoint of wound healing and then escalating it on up from that, that point on. It's you know, fascinating as you talk to, to thought leaders in your field, um, such as yourself, uh, how kind of, um, what a melting pot it was back then. And, and of course it is today, but there are these central figures that are sort of touchstones that people, you know, whether they're working on oral maxillofacial surgery, or like you said, cancer, or um, even infection, you know, Judah Folkman, his name keeps coming up, things like that. These uh, uh, people that really transformed our, our way of thinking about um regenerative medicine, but then medicine as a whole. Um, so, you know, you're a, um, a, a young surgeon scientist, young surgeon scientist to be, um, I think that uh, at this stage of where we're talking, and that's a, a, a nice pivot to our next segment here. And, you know, now uh, you have served as examiner as well as past president of the American Board of OMFS, as well as a founding president of the International uh, uh, Certification of Specialists in OMFS. As well, you served on uh, 12, about a, a dozen committees of PhD students at Rice University. Um, so I think it's only fair that we turn the tables and we give you your own oral exam today um, <laughs> during this podcast. So I, I'd like to um, present to you a few case scenarios um, and especially through the lens of regenerative medicine, hear, hear your thoughts. Um, so we're stepping into this time machine and we're going back to when you were first starting your career and into the OR rolls a patient um, that has a large craniofacial defect, maybe mandibular defect. And um, you can choose whether this is from a high trauma accident. I suspect back then, maybe that was like a horse and buggy accident. Um, <laughs> oh, or, or, uh, come on, not that long ago. Or maybe this is resection of a tumor. But when you were first starting to practice, what would be uh, the gold standard for trying to help this patient Compared to today, um, you know, June 17th, 2022, 
what has changed in your clinical practice, uh, particularly what's been informed by the field of regenerative medicine uh, in that, that time span? All right. Okay. So yeah, uh, um, I I uh, uh, I certainly um, have had the experience of having transcended, you know, a number of different approaches to the, the management of these uh, very large and challenging craniofacial defects. Um, so the first thing I'd have to say is, is that, you know, as we try to characterize any kind of large defect, we have to talk about defects, you know, that are missing just essentially bone, or are you talking about tissues that are, uh, I mean, defects that are missing both bone and soft tissue, mm -hmm. or if the soft tissue is still present, if the soft tissue has been compromised, you know, such as uh, by the effects of radiation therapy or, or, or burns or even multiple uh, surgeries that have produced a, a tremendous amount of scarring. So, you know, uh, with that in mind, you know, there were a number of different strategies that had to be adopted. So if you take the first situation, you know, in which you are missing just bone, but you have an adequate amount of well-vascularized soft tissue, then, you know, you can really consider trying to reconstruct the defect with just bone, you know, an autogenous bone graft. So autogenous bone was traditionally harvested, you know, from a number of different sites in the body that you could, you know, take out uh, uh, marrow as well as, as crush up, you know, some cortical bone as well. So, you know, taking harvesting bone from the ilium was a very, very common source. And, you know, it wasn't uncommon for you to be able to uh, uh, harvest maybe 50 or 60 cc's, you know, of uncompressed uh, bone marrow plus uh, some cortical bone as well, mix it up, you know, and, 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 and place this into the defect. Uh, but, you know, for that bone graft to survive, it obviously was going to require a, a uh, well-vascularized tissue bed and an adequate amount of soft tissue to be able to close around it. So that's one scenario. The second scenario that we mentioned was one in which, you know, there was deficient soft tissue, right? There was, and so either the soft tissue had to be removed as a result of the original pathology, in particular malignancies and where extension of the tumor required sometimes, you know, resection of the overlying soft tissue, or, you know, the soft tissue was present but compromised because the patient had been irradiated, or as we talked about, you know, the multiply scarred patient as well. So in those particular patients, you know, we, we very quickly discovered that if you try to do the same techniques as you did before, which was just to harvest, you know, bone, autogenous bone and, and plonk it into this, this uh, compromised wound bed, you know, the results were not very good. You know, there was the, the either the graft did not uh, survive, the graft did not incorporate, or there was ultimately exposure of the graft itself, you know, because of the uh, contractor of the soft tissue around it. Mm -hmm. So then we, we, we sort of evolved into a multi-stage sort of approach to it. And the multi-stage, you know, involved the first stage, which was to bring soft tissue to the area, well-vascularized soft tissue, or to try to improve the vascularity of the soft tissue by using adjunctive techniques like hyperbaric oxygen and such, you know. So those are the two different things, you know, that we would be able to do. Now, around that time too, and this is, you know, I'm starting off probably in, in the 1980s, early 1980s, you know, vascularized bone grafts were beginning to be used, you know, with greater uh, uh, um, 
uh, uh, with, with greater occurrence, you know, because uh, um, firstly, the surgeons who were doing it, primarily plastic surgeons, you know, had uh, uh, established uh, um, techniques in which they could harvest, you know, bone from different uh, sites, uh, such as the fibula or even the ilium or the scapula. Uh, these all had dominant, you know, and, uh, um, uh, vascular supplies that could be, you know, harvested without compromise to the residual sort of tissue. And, you know, they were essentially taking this and plumbing it into the defect. So this was becoming more and more popular. And so that was uh, one way in which you could address these great big huge defects without having to do a staged approach because you could, you know, you could essentially just bring it all together, you know, at the same time. I apologize, I have a call there. So um, as a result of, uh, of, of these two different uh, uh, sort of approaches, they, they tended to be more of these competing camps, you know, for reconstruction. So if you, you know, were a uh, um, microvascular trained surgeon, you tended to adopt techniques that used, you know, vascularized bone grafts. If you were not, you know, a microvascular trained surgeon, then you would use, you know, techniques in which you use non-vascularized grafts. Yeah. So that was, in essence, you know, the two different uh, 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 approaches. Now, the biggest, you know, advantage of using a microvascular technique is obviously the fact that you are able, you know, to do it all in one procedure. But the the, the downside of it, you know, is not only is it a, a very challenging sort of operation, but also whatever you put into the defect is still retains the characteristics of, of the bone that it was harvested from, right? So, you know, a fibula brought up to the mandible is still a fibula. And if the fibula is not as big as the mandible, then you have a much smaller bone graft. Uh, the downside of the, the, the non-vascularized uh, uh, techniques, you know, is the fact that you had to do it as a stage procedure, you know, but the advantage obviously was that because you could pack in more bone, you could get a greater, you know, uh, fidelity of reconstruction using that, that particular technique. So that was pretty much the way things were, you know, until I would say maybe about 10 years ago. And then about 10 years ago, really because of, of uh, 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 not only an interest, but also, you know, the, the refinements of different types of tissue engineering sort of techniques that people have started now, you know, to really try to, to uh, uh, do these, these uh, uh, reconstructions uh, using, you know, uh, the basic principles of, of, of tissue engineering, for instance, you know, we've, we've been able to uh, uh, um, harvest, you know, the, the, the power of different kinds of uh, uh, commercially available proteins, you know, in particular BMP2, um, and uh, use that in combination with allogeneic, you know, bones. So you don't have to take, you know, large amounts of uh, 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 the patient's own bone, uh, which, you know, it, it helps to bulk things out. And then, you know, to add some kind of living cellular content to it, you know, there've been a, a variety of, of, of sources, but, you know, they, they, they tend to be more in the form of aspirates, you know, versus, you know, the, the actual curating of large amounts of bone. So you can take aspirates from the hip, but I mean, people have also done, uh, uh, um, you know, um, using um, um, adipocytes, you know, and, and stromal vascular fractions, you know, derived from, from, uh, uh, fat harvest, you know, in, in a similar sort of way to provide the cellular component uh, to these reconstructive techniques. And so, you know, this, this, is, this is pretty much uh, um, um, 
I wouldn't say it's commonplace now because there are many places in the world that they don't have the availability of, of infused, you know, BMP and such, you know, to be able to do these reconstructions. But, but certainly, you know, in the developed world, I mean, this, this is a technique that, that is uh, uh, rapidly gaining popularity. That's, so it, it really sounds like what the transformative aspects between practice before and practice now are for, for reconstruction of these large wounds are, you know, improvements or new surgical techniques like microvascular surgery and tools to that end, um, the availability of new biomaterials like the, the allografts and, and synthetic graphs that you were mentioning, the ability, the availability of recombinant proteins, like our understanding of, of, of growth factors like BMP2, um, and then now sort of the availability of different cell types that may enhance regeneration. So that's, that really has been quite a um, transformation for the field over the last couple of decades. Right. Um, Right. So our last last sort of case-based question, um, uh, so far your boards are going well, by the way, um, <laughs> okay. but uh, if we know. get back our, our time machine and we go forward instead of back, you know, can you uh, tell us what, what do you think this case will look like in 10 years, your best guess? Um, what techniques might we bring to the operating room um, that would change how we practice now? Um, so, you know, I think that, that we have... Uh, um, we, we have we're on the way to developing, you know, a good uh, type of um, reconstruction system, you know, uh, such as the one that you just described, you know, a, a combination, you know, of recombinant proteins uh, uh, mixed in, you know, with with uh, allografts, allogeneic bone, and then, you know, adding a, a cellular a cellular component to it itself. So I think that part, you know, is uh, um, uh, the uh, the science behind that is uh, becoming more and more mature, you know, as we go along. The next big advance, I think, really is going to be um, not so much in the grafting system, but in the method in which this system is delivered, you know. So uh, uh, to take an example, you know, one of the, 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 uh, the issues that we still face, you know, at the moment is that for us to place a bone graft into the defect, we still have to do, you know, big incisions, a lot of dissection to get up into that site itself, expose, you know, the bony ends, and then place the bone graft, you know, the bone grafting system into that defect. Um, so, you know, that there is morbidity associated, you know, with uh, 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 making large incisions. Uh, uh, and there's also, you know, the potential for uh, complications that can develop also because of the extensive surgical dissections. So the question is really whether or not we can then develop strategies, you know, in, 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 in well, in the first case, you know, you don't, uh, uh, you try to limit the amount of dissection that you have to do by the placement of different types of devices, say space maintenance devices and all into the defect itself. So as it heals, you know, you're preserving a pocket of tissue, right? And then the second thing is that if we have now these different sorts of uh, tissue engineering techniques in which we can actually produce a bone grafting system, is there a way that we can introduce these bone grafting systems using minimally invasive sorts of uh, 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 methodology? And, and we already know that we can do a tremendous amount of work, you know, through endoscopes and such, right? And so something like that may be, you know, part of the future uh, 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 developments of, of uh, reconstruction uh, techniques. Yeah, that's really exciting. I'm actually not um, familiar with, uh, you know, facial endoscopy, um, you know, besides a, a, like an ENT, 
you know, laryngoscopy type perspective, but that, that would be absolutely fantastic. Though for my field of infectious diseases, that would cut into some of our business of these large uh, post-infectious wounds that you're talking about. <laughs> well, so, well but, but just consider the fact that if you were able then now to introduce, you know, different types of, of uh, drug eluding, you know, yeah. uh, uh, um, um, uh, material. So especially in the treatment of things like osteomyelitis, you know, which is very, very refractory, you know, as, as you know, uh, to just parental, you know, doses of, of, of antibiotics, but now you could deliver it locally and you could do it, you know, without having to make a big incision. I mean, that, that might actually increase, you know, your, uh, <laughs> your role in that. Um, that would be, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Be a dream. That's a um, tremendous vision for, for what the OR will look like in 10 years. Um, yeah. You know, but to get us there, let's pivot now. And instead of um, talking about, about patient cases specifically, let's talk a little bit about, about research and to set up the, the stage for our, our viewers. And some of them are, are likely historians, the field of tissue engineering is, you know, it, people have been doing tissue engineering or general medicine approaches for you know, centuries. Some might say, you know, the earliest sort of skulls that were found with seashells in the, the place of teeth. But, but really, the modern age of tissue engineering is probably thought to begin in the late 1980s, maybe around 1988 with Bacanti and Langer. And I think the term tissue engineering was first tokened in 1991. Um, so sort of digging into to your own records, your first publication, I think that I found or one of your earliest was in 1987 in the journal of OMFS. And there you were describing a new technique for the handling of autologous bone for grafting procedures. So mm -hmm. the very sort of forefront of tissue engineering, here you are publishing on, on bone graft as a, a sort of scaffold um, early on. Um, you know, from there, uh, you know, you pretty early in the, 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 the field in 96, you're publishing with Hollinger, as you mentioned, on, on different healing of both soft and, and bony tissues in the craniofacial complex. But um, how did you, make that leap. I think it's intimidating for a lot of clinicians to sort of start doing basic science work and to do translational work. Um, how were you able to, to sort of start collaborating with, with folks that were full-time in the lab? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that, that, that is really one of the, the great, you know, um, fortunes that, that, that I've uh, had, you know, working here in, in the Texas Medical Center, you know, um, obviously, uh, uh, it's, you know, well, it's arguably the largest medical center in the world and uh, uh, has so many different institutions that are affiliated with it. Um, I noticed, you know, when I first came here that even though there was a tremendous amount of uh, uh, skill, talents and knowledge, you know, that was available, part of the problem was that it was all in silos, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so, you know, the, the bioengineers over at Rice, you know, stayed over at, 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 uh, at Rice, you know, the uh, clinicians over at UT stayed in their, you know, their own little uh, 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 um, areas. And, you know, even cross specialties itself. I mean, um, obviously, you know, OMS has a lot, uh, um, uh, has a lot of overlap, you know, in terms of, of uh, uh, technology as well as 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 in cases with orthopedics you know and mm -hmm. and yet there, there wasn't you know this uh dialogue you know between the different you know sorts of groups so i think that you know in in, in my case probably one of the uh um one 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 of the the the, the um the great things that happened in my career was that um 
Um, I somehow have, you know, the uh, uh, ability to be able to go over and, 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 and start, you know, trying to make bridges, you know, with, with these different groups. And also, you know, I guess a certain amount of, uh, uh, um, well, you know, not being smart enough to know uh, what I didn't know about a particular topic and uh, not holding back from, you know, sitting down and trying to discuss things with people uh, when I didn't really have a good command of the topic to start with. And in the course of which, you know, learning about different things uh, along the way. I mean, I remember my, my, my very first, you know, few discussions with uh, Dr. Mikos, you know, for instance, who's a, a, a renowned, you know, bioengineer, but also, you know, uh, from a chemical engineering background. And as we were sitting there and having him, you know, sit there and, and discuss with me, you know, the different kinds of, of uh, polymers that were being used and hydrogels and how these different things had, had you know, uh, 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 peptide amphifills uh, and all. I, I had no idea what he was talking <laughs> about, you know, but, you know, uh, uh, I was fortunate that I could maybe just write down, you know, a couple of words, go back, you know, and, 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 and search for it, read up on it. And so it was really through that, that kind of uh, interaction um, and the availability of, of, of this interaction. And, and everyone was very kind, you know, I mean, they knew that I, I, I had, I didn't have the, 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 the last bit of knowledge, you know, as a, had to do with, with with some of the more esoteric things to do with uh, polymer science and all, but eventually it also became a, a nice collaboration because I think that from the the basic science sort of standpoint, they understood that it was really important to have that kind of clinical connection. You know, the clinical connection would 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 not only be able to inform the the basic scientists as to the real challenges you know that needed to be overcome, uh, but ultimately it also led you know to the ability for us to be able to 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 get involved and 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 uh, work, you know, with uh, people like yourself and all who are really part of the MST program, the medical science scientist training programs, you know, which were integrated MD PhDs, and so that that also, you know, was was a, a great opportunity, and that helped, you know, the the the, the sort of initial forays, as you put it, you know, from uh, being just a, a clinician into to tr trying to become more of a clinician scientist. Um, and you've certainly, you know, served as a role model. So like, as you said, all of these relationships have been such two-way streets where we we come into these training programs and we have, uh, you know, the, the chair of a huge training program who has a million clinical responsibilities and administrative responsibilities. And the fact that you're able to dedicate so much time and you're so passionate about you know, hearing about the latest polymer we've cooked up in the laboratory or collaborating together to build a new animal model um, has inspired me and, and many of our, our colleagues in, in Houston and, and beyond. Um, you know, speaking of uh, your relationship with Dr. Mikos, your, your partner in crime, um, we are actually, I believe this is the 20th anniversary of your first published conference proceedings together. Um, the first author of which was John Fisher, who is now since become the chair of biomedical engineering at the University of Maryland. And this was a rabbit model. Um, right. Uh, one of the first rabbit models wow. we all worked out. Wow, okay. yeah. yeah. For, I mean, I remember the paper. Okay. I don't 
Yeah, I, I don't remember the year that it was published, but it was. Yes, it was. John was just finishing off his his uh, his PhD, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We, we got involved, you know, in 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 uh, doing you know some work looking at hydrophilic versus hydrophobic, you know, sort of characteristics of uh, of the famous uh, PPF, high propylene fumarate for our, our viewers, and and then the the following, so that was a, a conference proceeding, and the following year in 2003 was your first full manuscript that you had published as a co-author with Dr. Mikos, and one of the authors there was Eric Frey, who is now uh, the chair at University of Texas, San Antonio, so I think uh, for our listeners, the lesson of this story is if you want to become the chair of a department, <laughs> be very wise to be mentored by uh, Dr. Wong and Dr. Mikos. Um, not to turn this into a this is your life, but I did ask Dr. Mikos for a quote um, uh, on this occasion, uh, and he had this to say, um, he's been very fortunate to collaborate with Mark over the years and supervise the research of myriads of students and fellows. Mark's contributions to the scientific literature and clinical practice have been hugely impactful. However, his true legacy will be all the trainees he has mentored and have gone on to become thought leaders in their own right. Um, that was from uh, Dr. Gustin. Oh, and, thank you very much. Yeah. And absolutely true. And you know, as we talk about research, and I think we keep coming back to, to the, the threat of um, the, the legacy that you've built, and it's not just been the, the publications, the polymers, the animal models, um, but it's, it's been the, the people that you've trained that are now going on to, um, you know, actually raise generations of scientists uh, themselves. Um, in your own department, uh, you've, you have recruited and, and, and raised, so to speak, a number of superstars. I won't name them all, but Dr. Young was actually featured on this podcast series in, in the last season. Um, Dr. Melville has recently uh, spoken at my, my institution here in Boston. Um, it's, I think, fair to say uh, unusual, especially in surgical subspecialties, to have a department that has such a dedication to, to basic research, translational research. How, how have you been able to, to build this environment and foster, foster leaders like this? So, you know, Alex, I, I think that pretty much every major academic department wants to be able to do that. So I don't think it's a lack of want, you know, but to make it happen um, it requires a number of different things. And, and in our case, you know, we've been able to do it by building such a large department. So when you have a large department, you have a lot of faculty, you have a lot of residents and everything, you can share in the workload. Because honestly, you know, when we uh, um, uh, get a contract, you know, from uh, the, the Harris County Hospital District, or we get a contract from Memorial Hermann Hospital, or, or, or even a contract from the dental school, you know, to do things, it isn't necessarily to do research. You know, we're being hired to be clinicians, to, to be healthcare providers to look after you know the trauma to look after the infections and all and when you're in a center such as ours you know that workload can be really considerable so for you to be able to have individuals who uh firstly have to have the talent but secondly to have you know the, the time and the opportunity to become thought leaders they have to be able to have time to think and so to do that, you know, you really do need to have, I think, a, a large number of individuals so you can share in the workload and actually then start protecting individuals' time. So that's, that's, that's one thing. Um, the second thing is then you also need to have a funding structure that is going to allow people, you know, to, in essence, uh, uh, be paid to think at an equivalent amount to somebody who's just operating all the time, 
you know. Um, as you know, in our healthcare system, you know, we're, we're very, very much into a revenue-based model. And that revenue-based model uh, can actually, you know, negatively impact some of these things, especially if you are not funded by one of these large NIH grants. So if you're doing, you know, small translational projects in which there's maybe a, 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 a very small sort of support grant from a, um, you know, from a commercial vendor in a particular area itself, it's hard to be able to reconcile the amount of time that you have to spend on that particular project with a very little return that you're getting, you know, from this particular grant. And if, if the model that you have in an apartment is entirely based on the fact that, you know, you eat what you kill type of things, you know, then there, there is a disincentive to that. So one thing I think that we've been able to do, you know, uh, uh, um, aside from just, you know, building a large department is that we've also developed a very uh, kind of uh, uh, ecumenical sort of way uh, in which everyone is funded, you know, and so we, 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 in essence, you know, pool all of our resources and divide them up in a way that uh, we don't make it such that an individual who is generating, you know, more because he spends more time in a clinical sort of sense uh, um, is, is going to be different from somebody who spends time doing you know valuable research right and so so i think that that part has also uh, helped and then the third part is really just you know being able to be and i've been very very fortunate in this regard too is finding the right people you know because they not only all have to be prepared you know to do the work but they also have to be prepared to share in this type of a model you know because if you don't if they don't believe in it uh, then you know you're not going to get that, that that help and collaboration to make this whole thing work. So that's that's where we've been incredibly fortunate. Yeah, I, and again, it, it speaks to your vision that you were able to to have everyone buy into that sort of model, especially um, in a center so huge. Uh, you know, for those that aren't familiar with Houston, uh, the OMFS department in particular really serves a tremendous amount of patients um, and in a, a wide diversity of, of patients and hospital systems. So it's, a, I'm sure, a lot of moving parts. Um, you know, with that sort of our, our, our last topic, um, you know, we talked about uh, your, your early career and, and how you came upon this path. We have, have spent some time talking about how regenerative medicine is, has transformed your clinical field. We've, we've talked about um, some of your, your early work in research and, and the legacy that you've built building a platform for researchers to launch their careers. Um, I think one of the hurdles that we in the field of regenerative medicine continue to come up against is, is the final translation. You know, we've got a uh, very interesting concepts at the bench top, uh, and maybe some of these are even working in animal models. Um, but do you have any words of advice for folks that are trying to then make the final leap to bring these to, to the bedside or to the OR? Yeah, you know, uh, and that that's that's a great question, Alex. You know, and uh, uh, and I don't you, and. Honestly, you know, you came up with this question on your own. I certainly didn't prompt you or anything uh, that, but it may also have uh, had something to do with, you know, all the work that that you and I and others, you know, have done on our AFIRM grant, our Armed Forces Institute of Regenerative Medicine grant, you know, where um, it that that particular grant 
for not talking about the science and not talking about even all the results, you know, but just focusing entirely on the regulatory process that we had to endure, you know, to take what would be considered to be a very simple material, a polymethyl methacrylate space maintainer. Here's a material that has been used for many, many years in medicine and all, but the testing and everything that had to be done on this to be able to get some sort of regulatory approval. And it's been, you know, over a 10 year process uh, and conservatively, I would say that we have spent probably three quarters of a million dollars, you know, on that particular endeavor itself. So one thing that I would say, you know, to people who are getting involved, especially clinicians getting involved, you know, uh, or wanting to get involved in uh, regenerative medicine uh, or, or any kind of uh, um, research-based endeavor, there is a difference between developing techniques and there's a difference between developing technologies, you know. So with a technique, you can try to build a better mousetrap, a better way of doing a surgery using materials that have already gained regulatory approval. So a great example of that, you know, is the recombinant proteins that are currently available. Somebody else has done all that basic science work and somebody else has gone through the regulatory process already. And now, you know, you have a material that you know is safe. Now you may, it may not have uh, uh, approval, you know, for your particular application, but there is such a thing known as physician-directed use in which you can then, you know, even though it is not uh, 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 marketed that way, you can adapt, you know, that particular uh, um, uh, material to developing or improving on a, uh, on a surgical technique. So that is infinitely easier to do because in, in that situation, all you have to do is to be able to control, you know, the, 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 the factors in a trial. You know, you have to, to be able to prove that your technique is superior to what is, is previously done, but you can do that with good match cohorts of patients, you know, very rigorous in a sort of a, a, a surgical standards and good, you know, sort of follow-ups, you know, to that itself. If you decide, though, to get involved in the development of technologies, that becomes a lot more complicated, you know, because depending on, you know, what type of technology you're talking about, whether you're talking about a device or you're talking about biologic, you're talking about some very, very lengthy regulatory, you know, exercises that need to be conducted. And, you know, the types of exercises that, that are going to be uh, not only, you know, time consuming, but also extremely expensive. Now, unfortunately, if you cannot, you know, identify a commercial partner who sees, you know, this particular technology as something that is going to have very, very widespread use, you know, uh, I mean, we, we talk about a lot of things that we do as being part of the orphan technologies, right? Which is <laughs> essentially less than what, 3,000 cases a year or something. I mean, even 3,000 cases to me sounds like a lot of cases, but you know, if it's anything less than that, it's, it's, it's a very, very small market share. And yeah. as a result, you know, it's hard to get, you know, companies to really support that particular uh, um, um, uh, exercise, you know, to gain uh, uh, regulatory approval. So, you know, I would just 
caution people as you're going forwards, you know, into your your different sorts of uh, scientific endeavors to to really keep that in mind, you know, so that you don't invest a tremendous amount of time, work, and heartache, you know, on the development of a technology in the end that you cannot bring, you know, from bench to bedside just because of the lack, you know, of uh, a regulatory approval. You know? So I think that's something that you've impressed upon me and your other trainees too, that, you know, the, the early days of sitting down to brainstorm about projects when you've got, you know, a room of bioengineers and clinicians and, and end users, everything else. Um, it's not just, it's important to not just consider the, the science and, and unfortunately even the, the patient, but also important to consider the regulatory hurdles upfront, because you may come up with a, a really wonderful, elegant idea, but there's just no way that fathomably could pass through the regulatory process for one reason or another. And you want to make sure that you're dedicating your energies towards um, problems that can be, can be solved and can be taken to our patients to improve their healthcare. So that's a, a really helpful framework that I think you just laid out for our audience in terms of how to approach um, uh, uh, some of the regulatory challenges up front with regenerative medicine. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if I had to, to summarize um, the mentorship of Dr. Wong with, with only three words, you know, he's, he's innovative, as you can tell from this interview, innovative and enthusiastic about his innovation. Um, he's collaborative, um, always bringing on different people, different groups and, and, and bringing them together. And then lastly, he's very generous, generous to his patients, generous to his colleagues and generous to his, uh, his mentees and uh, with his time. Um, so I'd like to thank, thank you, Dr. Wong. Um, thank you to the Osteoscience Foundation um, for setting up uh, uh, this, this interview on uh, generations of regeneration for everyone's time. I don't know if there's any last words that you'd want to, to leave us with. Um, well, you know, it's been such a pleasure to work, you know, with, with so many generations of, you know, really, really bright, capable, enthusiastic individuals. And it's even more wonderful to watch, you know, you guys actually take the next step and become independent, you know, sort of scientists on your own. And I just hope, you know, because I, I'm, I'm not planning on retiring anytime soon, I'm just hoping that now individuals such as yourself and all who have uh, uh, are finishing the formal part of your your training and education that somehow you know in the next phase we'll we'll be able to come back and rekindle some of those original you know sorts of uh, uh projects and all that that we did alex i i, I you know and I'm very grateful to you for being such a, a, a generous and 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 well prepared interviewer because I think that this has gone very very well thank you absolutely well Thank you, um, and thank you to our audience for your time. Uh, this has been Generations of Regeneration. To learn more about Osteoscience Foundation, visit osteoscience.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.